This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and Queen Mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shepham, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Sedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. It would be good if you would uh, keep that passage open in front of you, either in your Bible or uh, on the bulletin, or perhaps like Moses, you've got it somewhere on a tablet. Uh, but wherever you have the word, then do please keep it open, because we're going to be looking at that text together. Jeremiah 29. How can we live as God's people in the midst of a culture, a city, a, a world that may either ignore us or in some cases despise us and reject our claims and our message, or indeed become quite overtly hostile towards us as Christians, as God's people? What is the mission that we can have? How can we even transform a situation in which we exist as a very much a minority, small community? Well, those are the questions which we may face today in our day and culture, but they were also the same questions which, in principle, faced the people to whom this letter was written, the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Perhaps not in exactly the same words as I've just expressed them, uh, but certainly it was the kind of thing that they were wondering. How could they live as Yahweh's people, the people of the living God, the people that God had chosen to be a blessing to the nations? How could they live now that they were out of their land, in exile, in a pagan, unbelieving, unclean world like Babylon? 
Let me very quickly fill you in on the situation uh, so that you've got the sort of background to this letter. The, the year was 597 BC. Uh, it was the time when Nebuchadnezzar had taken a first tranche of uh, leading citizens from Jerusalem to Babylon as a kind of warning, as kind of hostages in some way. Uh, and a few years later, 10 years later, he would return to Jerusalem uh, because they had rebelled against Babylon yet again, besieged the city for 18 months and then destroyed it uh, and carried off most of the rest of the population into exile. This was the most traumatic event that ever happened in the Old Testament history for the people of Israel. And the only way we can kind of imagine what it must have been like um, living in a relatively prosperous city like Hong Kong or my own home city of London is what we can see on television screens when we see something like what's happening in Ukraine at the moment and see cities that have been devastated and bombed and shelled and destroyed, buildings torn down, people fleeing. Uh, what would have happened in Jerusalem also? The city was burnt. The temple was destroyed. Uh, there was death and destruction and rape uh, and ravaging and looting. It was an awful, terrible situation. And the reaction of the people that we know about from the parts of the Old Testament varied quite a bit. There were some for whom this was utter despair. This was basically the end. There was no more future. Uh, that's what they said in Ezekiel chapter 37. They said, we might as well be dead bones in a grave. That's how they felt. At the other end of the scale, though, at least initially, before the final destruction, there was a kind of superficial optimism. Uh, there was a, a prophet, Hananiah, in Jerusalem who said, don't worry, it'll all be over soon, just two years, and the people will be coming back. Well, Hananiah himself didn't even last two years. He was dead within two months because he was a false prophet, and that certainly didn't come true. But the biggest question that the people faced was, where is God in all of this? Where is the Lord, Yahweh, our God, the God of Israel? Where is the God of the Exodus? Where is the God of Joshua? Where is the God of David? What has he got to say about all of this? Well, when you need a word from the Lord, you need a prophet who will see things from God's point of view and bring you God's word, God's eye view of events and at this time in Jerusalem, Jeremiah was that prophet. That was the problem. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem, and the exiles now had gone off to Babylon, which was like about a thousand miles away, a bit hard to preach across all those miles. So what could he do? He sent them a letter. And that's what we have in our text in Jeremiah chapter 29. In fact, if you read the whole chapter, there was clearly quite a bit of correspondence going on uh, across those miles. Now, in this letter that Jeremiah sends to the exiles in Babylon. I want us just to see three areas, three things that we could look at together, which I hope will speak to us. The first of all is that he's telling that they need to look beneath the surface of events for what actually was a surprising new perspective to see the hand of God there. But secondly, he was asking them to look around and to realize a very surprising new mission that God was giving to them. And then thirdly, he's asked them to look up and to look forward to a very surprising future, surprising hope for the future. So first of all then, this surprising new perspective, he asked them to look beneath the surface to see what's going on. 
Now, here's a question. Who was responsible for the exiles being in exile in Babylon? Who did it? I wonder if you noticed that the text gives us actually two answers to that question. The narrator tells us in verse 1 that these were all the people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. But when God actually speaks in the letter in verse 4, he says to all those who I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who did it? Nebuchadnezzar or God? And the answer is, of course, that it was both. You see, at the level of just ordinary human history on the ground, in a sense, what you would have seen if you'd been there, or what you'd have seen on television if CNN or BBC had been there, what you'd have seen was the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian armies, evil, wicked, violent men doing their worst, destroying the city, raping the women, robbing the temple, setting everything on fire. It was an evil, destructive act leading to death, destruction, loss, and trauma. But at another level, you see, what the prophet saw was the hand of God behind the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And that, of course, was what many of the people themselves, the Israelites, couldn't accept or either didn't want to or just couldn't understand. I mean, what they thought, we know this again from Jeremiah and certainly from Ezekiel and from some of the texts in Isaiah as well, they either thought that, well, Yahweh our God has just deserted us. He's just left. He's gone. We've sinned ourselves too much and he's abandoned us. Or perhaps they thought, well, Yahweh, our God's been defeated. Nah, he's just grown too old. He's been around a long time. He's got a bit weak. And these younger gods of Babylon have now defeated the God of Israel. Which, of course, is how it looked to the Babylonians. That's exactly what you thought. The gods were on your side, so if our God beat your God, we beat you in battle. But no, no, no. That's not the way God saw it or Jeremiah. Yes, of course, Israel was defeated by Babylon. Yes, of course, Jerusalem had been destroyed by Babylon. But the Lord God of Israel himself, no, no, he's still on the throne. He's still sovereign. He's still in charge. In fact, it's this God who has done this, in a sense, for his own purpose, as we think later. He is still sovereign. Now, that's a problem when you're right up against events. See, it's, it's all very well. I'm sure all of us would want to stand here or sing here of the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign. We believe that. But it's always easier to believe in the sovereignty of God looking back to something that's happened in the past. I mean, we can look back to these events that are in the Bible and say, yes, God did this. God sent them into exile, blah, blah, blah. And we just look backwards and see the sovereignty of God. It's much more difficult to go on affirming that God is in charge, that God is sovereign, that God knows what he's doing when you're right up face to face with events that you don't really like, when something is happening that seems utterly wrong, evil. And especially when it seems, when events are unfolding, when it seems as if God is somehow undoing all that he's already done. I don't know if you noticed in the text that twice it uses the phrase from Jerusalem to Babylon. <laughs> Trouble is, that's altogether the wrong direction, isn't it? 
but it's not just two points on a map. The whole story of Israel in the Old Testament, from Abraham right through to the present, went in the opposite direction from Babel, Babel, Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, Babylon, that land where Abraham had come from. It all came from Babylon to Jerusalem, the city where God had put his name, the city of David, the city of the temple, Zion, the city of God. The whole Old Testament goes from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it's almost as if God has pushed the rewind button, if we ever use those things still today, and sent everything backwards in reverse. It's all going now from Jerusalem back to Babylon. How can God completely reverse his purposes and his plans? Is God no longer in control? Has God forgotten his purpose and plans? Why has this happened? Why is this happening to us now? It can seem very difficult when things happen which just seem to be contrary to what God should want to happen. I'm just old enough to remember the shock that went around the Christian missionary world in the middle of the last century, around about 1950-51, I was four years old at the time, when China expelled all Western missionaries from the country. And I remember the shocked tones of those who are making the conversation as adults about, why has God allowed this? How can this happen? What's going to happen to the church in that country uh, with all the missionaries having left? Will it be the end? Will they be finished? Why is God doing this? Well, what we know today, 70 years later, is that today there will be more Christian believers in churches in the mainland than in all of Western Europe and Britain put together. The end of that era did not mean that God had lost control or that it was the end of his church. It's taken a long time to recognize that, but God knew what he was doing. And so you see, this is the this surprising perspective that Jeremiah brings to the exiles. This is awful. This is traumatic. This is not what you wanted to happen, but... God is still there. God is still in control. God knows what's happening, even though it's so unwelcome. And so for that reason, Jeremiah is able to urge the exiles there to settle down in Babylon. He says to them, look, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, have sons and daughters, have grandsons and granddaughters, he says, because you're going to be there, not just for two months or two years, but two generations. This is a long-haul vision. You're going to be there, so be there with God. I think this is something of an antidote to what I call a bit of an overdose of the pilgrim mentality. Now, there is a proper kind of pilgrim vision within the Scriptures that we are on a journey to a new creation. God has a future. But I don't know, I remember when I was a a young teenager singing a song in our youth group uh, well, I didn't like to sing it. I played the piano for it because it got me out of singing it. But it's that one, do you remember? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Uh, you know, and the, the angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And I, I, remember I didn't like singing that because it just seemed wrong. I was a young Christian, and I had this strong feeling I'm, I'm here. God has put me on this earth for a purpose. So the angels 
can go and beckon somebody else. You know, I'm staying here with God for God. I know this world is not my ultimate home in the sense of this broken, fallen, rebellious world, but it is my home for God's purposes while I'm here. And I think that's something of what Jeremiah is saying to these exiles. Babylon is not your permanent home, but it is your present home. It's where God has put you. So live there with him. I don't know how this speaks into your circumstances or thinking here. I know what's been going on in this city, obviously, over these years. I know the pressures, the struggles, and I can see that, obviously, you are still here. Uh, And God bless you for that, and that's true. But the question is, can we be in the situation in that sense, not just grudgingly and reluctantly, but for God's sake and for God's purpose and say, God has put me here, I'll stay. I remember a Palestinian pastor in Bethlehem when I was there at a conference at, in the Palestinian part of, of that land. Uh, and, and he was saying that obviously there are many, many of his fellow citizens of, of uh, Palestinian Christian believers who, when they were free to, would choose to leave the country. But he said, I was not born and saved in Bethlehem by chance, he said. I'm here because God put me here in my birth and in my salvation, and so here is where I'm going to stay and serve him. One person or one small group of people who probably heard this letter when it was first read out would have been Daniel and his three friends. Um, you know, who were then, uh, we know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though they had other Jewish names before they were given those ones. They were there already when Jeremiah sent this letter because they'd been taken into exile in a previous deportation. Now, of course, this is pure conjecture on my part. I have no proof that they heard the letter, but I think they probably did because what we know is that they accepted, they settled there in Babylon. They accepted new names, Babylonian names. They accepted Babylonian education, which was full of the occult and the idolatrous, and they accepted Babylonian employment, working in the government service. The one thing they would not accept, they said no to, was to the royal food, the food from the king's table, uh, which probably meant accepting table fellowship and therefore utter total loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. It seems that's probably the reason why they said, no, we, we can't do that. Only God is our God. We will not give to a human king what we can only give to God. Probably that's what they meant. So here were these friends, Daniel and his friends, who were prepared to do what Jeremiah said, to settle down in Babylon and to serve that place, but to remain faithful to the Lord their God. This message then, this perspective, turned what we might say refugees into residents. And sometimes I know that even in a place like this, certainly sometimes in London, it's possible to feel like an alien even in your own land. Uh, And here are people who are being told, in that land, settle down there with God. This is the perspective that he offers them. See the hand of God in your circumstances, not just the hand of Nebuchadnezzar or whoever else it might be. That leads us to the second main thought that comes, which, as I've said, is that they needed to look around and to serve God's mission where God had put them. Now, this comes out in verse 7, if you can see it there in, in the text. 
And I have to say that I would not like to have been the man or woman who had to read this letter out to the exiles when he came to this bit, where he had to say, after the first part, he had to say, <clears throat> oh, and also, he says, seek the shalom, that's what it says, of the city to which I have carried you, i.e., Babylon. Pray to the Lord for it, that is, for Babylon, because if it prospers, you will prosper. Literally, in its shalom is your shalom. <laughs> I mean, what? Who are these people to whom this? These are exiles, refugees, effectively prisoners of war. And there they are in this hostile, foreign, pagan enemy city. And this insufferably pesky prophet in Jerusalem that we never used to like or listen to anyway writes us a letter saying that we are to pray to the Lord for Babylon, our enemies. It's almost certain that many of these exiles wouldn't even have thought that they could pray to God in Babylon, let alone pray to the Lord for Babylon. And you can almost imagine some of them getting so angry and coming up to the poor man who's reading. They say, excuse me, let, let me see that. Let me see that. It must have been changed. Something must have been scrubbed out here with a Babylonian censor, you know, and, and changed. Because we know what it should say from Psalm 122. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. That's who we should be praying for. No, no, no. Pray for the city where I've carried you, Babylon. Yeah, but we know what we want for Babylon, and it's not this. You see, that's what we lead in, in Psalm 137, isn't it? By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. Because our captors said, oh, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange, foreign, pagan, unclean land? How can we even pray to God there, let alone sing songs? No, 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 no. we know what we want for Babylon. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks like you did to ours, is what they mean. What do we want for Babylon? Vengeance. And when do we want it? Now. That would have been the mood among these exiles in Babylon. And Jeremiah says, pray for them. This is a surprising, shocking mission that he's giving to them, that they should seek the shalom, which means peace, well-being, welfare, prosperity, the good. Seek the good of your neighbors there in Babylon. <laughs> but there are enemies. So what? Pray for them. But they just destroyed our city. They'd be saying when that happened a little bit later, yeah, well, seek their welfare. It's just shocking, surprising. In fact, I think that it's the closest we get in the Old Testament to what Jesus said when he said, love your enemies. Which in Jesus' day, of course, would have been the Roman soldiers who were patrolling the streets when the people of Jesus' own day still thought that they felt like exiles and hostages and strangers and refugees in their own land. They'd come back from exile, but they were still under the oppression of the Romans. And yet Jesus says, love your enemies. It's a surprising word. 
Once again, I think that Daniel is an example of doing exactly what Jeremiah 29 verse 7 says. Again, I've no proof of this, but it seems to me very likely, certainly very possible. Because we know, don't we, from the book of Daniel chapter 6, that Daniel was a man of prayer. It tells us there in Daniel 6 that he was praying, his habit was to be praying to God three times a day. And I just wonder, was Nebuchadnezzar at the top of his prayer list? Because otherwise, how do we explain what happened when Nebuchadnezzar, again, for the second time, had a very bad dream. Remember, he's a bit of an insomniac, old Nebuchadnezzar, and a bad dream in chapter 2, and he's another dream in chapter 4. Only in chapter 4, he has this dream of a great tree with its branches spreading out all over the world, and then suddenly he hears a voice in his dream saying, chop it down. And then the dream changes, as dreams do, and instead he sees a man being driven out with a voice saying, drive him out to eat grass like an ox. And he doesn't know what this dream means. And nobody can explain it to him until Daniel comes in. And then Daniel listens to Nebuchadnezzar recounting this dream that he's had. And Daniel realizes this dream is for Nebuchadnezzar. It's for him. Now, what would you have been thinking at that moment? Wouldn't it be perfectly natural for Daniel to be thinking, yes, this is about him. This is for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's for the chop. Thank God that I've lived long enough to see God's vengeance on my enemy. Wouldn't that be natural? Not for Daniel. What we read in Daniel chapter 4 is that when Nebuchadnezzar told him his dream, he was so upset that he couldn't even speak until Nebuchadnezzar coaxed him and persuaded him to. And then his opening words are, Oh, king, I wish this dream was for your enemies and not for you. But it is for you. He realized that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt of his own judgment. So what does Daniel do at that moment? He says, So please be pleased to accept my advice, he says. This is Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. Be pleased to stop oppressing the poor and do justice, and then it might be that you will be spared this judgment. Daniel actually gives to his enemy a way to avoid the judgment of God. And I just wonder, doesn't that suggest that Daniel had been praying for Nebuchadnezzar all this time? Again, I don't know, but... It's hard to go on hating somebody if you're praying for them every day. And here's Daniel perhaps doing what Jeremiah had said. Seek the shalom. Pray for Babylon. Be there as God's missionaries in Babylon. Seek the welfare of that city. One of the things that I rather like uh, about my own home church, All Souls Church in Langham Place in London, is that we do have a ministry It's part of the mission work of the church called Serve the City, which means the city of London. And so we have ministry among the homeless. Uh, there is also ministry among uh, the prostitutes and sex-trafficked women and so on. It's called Tamar. Uh, there are various ministries of that sort. But I also want to say that there are many, many ways in which we can be a blessing and serve the welfare of a city where we live. Yes, of course, we do it through overt mission, through evangelism, through bringing people to um, Christianity Explored, seeking to bring people the gospel. But we can also be a blessing through giving employment, through medical work, through business, through development, through all sorts of ways in which in our everyday lives and work, 
We can be seeking the welfare of the city where we live and where God has put us by simply doing what Paul says in the New Testament of being good citizens, of doing good where we are. I remember when I was uh, involved with a preaching seminar once in Argentina, there in, in Latin America. It was one of the early ones, back about 2003 or four, I think it was. Um, and I was observing that among, this was like a whole week of, of preaching training, that among those who were helping to facilitate it, there were three men who were uh, doing some of the preaching. And although it was all happening in Spanish, I could see that they were regularly referring to the Bible. They were preaching from the Bible itself. Uh, and that's what we were trying to train people to do. So one morning at breakfast, I said to Sylvia Chavez, who was the, uh, uh, the, the organizer of the whole event, and I said to her, I named these three men. By the way, they were not pastors. Um, they were actually, you know, ordinary Christians, so to speak, in secular employment. I think one was an engineer, one was a university professor. They were, quote, lay Christians, but they were clearly preaching the Bible and doing it well. And I said to Sylvia, I said, so these three, they're, they're great preachers, aren't they? And she said, yes, she said, they're good preachers, but they're also good husbands and good fathers and good citizens. And I said, well, I understand why you would say they're good husbands and fathers. Why did you also add that they're good citizens? And she said, well, because they're here still in Argentina. Uh, they haven't, as so many of our Christian professionals have done, have all fled up north to the USA. She said, they're still here, and she then says, they're in good jobs, paying their taxes, they are a blessing to our country. Those are her precise words. They are a blessing to our country. And I thought, how Abrahamic. It's just what God said to Abraham, isn't it? Through you I will bless all nations on earth, so go and be a blessing. And that's what those men were being. So Jeremiah is telling these exiles to come out of mourning into mission. No longer to think of themselves merely as strangers and exiles in their own city, but as those whom God had put there for the purpose of being a blessing. And by the way, just in case we thought that uh, Jeremiah had a really a rather romantic, rosy-eyed view of Babylon, you know, that city far away, wonderful city, hanging gardens of Babylon, seven wonders of the world, you know, these exiles there having a nice... No, Jeremiah knew that Babylon stood under the judgment of God for their wicked ways. Because in the next diplomatic bag, after the one he sent this letter in, we have what we have in the book as chapters 50 and 51 of Jeremiah. Now, I'm not asking you to turn to those or read them now because they're very, very long. So it was a whole scroll of curses and judgment and God's declared wrath and anger against Babylon for their wickedness. Jeremiah knew full well that Babylon as a city stood under the wrath and judgment of God and would ultimately be destroyed. In fact, he said that when that scroll had been read out, that one had been read out, it was to be tied up with a stone and thrown into the river Euphrates. So they must have kept a copy for us to have it in our Bible. But you see, the point was that God is saying that's what's going to happen to Babylon. It is a city under judgment. And we know, of course, that Babylon then becomes a kind of symbolic word for all evil empire and cities of mankind going right through to the book of Revelation, which ultimately stand under the judgment of God. 
So wherever we live in the world today, there is a sense in which we are living in Babylon. And Babylon stands under God's judgment. And yet God says to us, yes, I know. But seek the welfare of the city where I put you. Pray to the Lord for it. Seek its shalom. Be good people. Do good stuff. That's why Paul repeatedly in his letters told Christians who are saved by grace, not by good works, saved by grace in order to do good works where we are. He says that six times in the letter to Titus. That's why Peter says, go on doing good. Live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good works and come to glorify God. Hebrews, do not forget to be doing good. Thessalonians, never tire of doing good. So here is a mission for us in this city, in this country. Of course, wider than that, through the agencies that are upstairs that we're looking at, all the mission agencies that God gives us. But there is a role for us, for every one of us, to be on mission for God. Jeremiah 29, verse 7, where you are, where God has put you. So that's the first two, isn't it? A new perspective. They should look beneath the surface and see the hand of God in their circumstances, and what does that mean for you and for me? They needed also this surprising new mission uh, to seek the welfare of the city where they were because God had put them there and to be Abrahamic, to be a blessing. And thirdly, there's a surprising new hope because they needed to look forward and to needed to look upward. And that's what comes in verses 10 to 14. Now, of course, I said right at the very beginning that Israel was in exile in Babylon because of the sovereign governance and purposes of God. But I didn't specifically emphasize why. And the reason is, of course, that this was God's judgment upon them, the people of Israel, because God had warned them for centuries, through generation after generation, from the very beginning, that if they continued to rebel against him with injustice and idolatry and evil and oppression and all the ways that they were behaving, if they went on behaving like that, God said, I will drive you out of your land and destroy that city and send you into exile. And they had, and he did. And that's why so many of them, as I said, thought that this was the end. That God is finished with us. The covenant is over. And so this words that come here in verses 10 to 14 are massively surprising. Surprising into the future, that there still is hope for them. Now, it wasn't going to be immediate. This was no quick fix solution. It wasn't going to happen in two months or two years, as I said. Seventy years, God says, will come for Babylon in verse 10. So those who heard this letter read out would not actually see it with their own eyes. It would be something for the future, for the long-term future for their children and their grandchildren. But God says, Babylon... Babylon, their oppressor, Babylon, this great world power, Babylon, which had risen to glory and preeminence in the Middle East. This Babylon's time will come, like all human empires, ancient or modern or contemporary. God rises up and God puts down. That's the lesson of Old Testament history. So Babylon's time will come. And then, says God, verse 11, then, says God, I will come to you. I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then the famous verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. 
It's a wonderful word, isn't it? It's perhaps one of the most famous promises in the whole Bible. I'd be surprised if there aren't several people here this morning who've got those very words, that very verse, somewhere in your house, on some calendar or a nice picture frame or somewhere. It's one of the most quoted, claimed promises of the Bible. But have you ever noticed the context in which it comes? How surprising it is? This is a shocking promise given to people who were under the judgment of God. And yet God is saying that in his mercy and in his goodness, there is still a future for his people. And I say his people because although many of us would want to claim this promise for ourselves, and that's not wrong, the you of the verse is not singular, it's plural. God is speaking to his whole people. He's saying God has a future for the people of God beyond judgment, right through into the ultimate future when they turn back to him and seek him with all their heart. Because that, of course, is the importance of verses 12 to 14. Because when you hear this promise, what should it you know, engender? Does it lead then just to a kind of gleeful celebration? Oh, that's good then. Everything's going to be okay. God's going to be nice to me, etc. Well, no. God says that the promise of verse 11 is for those who will obey verses 12 to 14. When you call on me, when you pray to me, when you seek me, when you find me with all your... In other words, this is a call for a penitent, repentant, obedient people who will come back to God. And once again, for the last time, I think this is something that Daniel illustrates. Because, and this time I do know, that Daniel actually was reading the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah. He tells us that in chapter 9. And he says, I saw from the words of Jeremiah that the time for Babylon was getting near, 70 years, and it was nearly up. So Daniel, by this time, must have been quite an old man. So here is Daniel, and, and, and what does he do? Does he say, oh, now I realize Babylon's time has come and call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for some kind of praise party? No, what Daniel does in chapter 9 is that he falls to confession before God, confessing the sin of his own people, praying to God for mercy. So here is Daniel, who had spent his whole lifetime praying in Babylon and praying probably for Babylon, who is now praying again for God's own city, the city of Jerusalem, the people of God. This promise of verse 11 is for a contrite, confessing, repentant people who will grieve not just for the sins of the world, of course, but will grieve and mourn for the sins of God's people, God's church, and ask God to bring us back to faithfulness and obedience to him. And you see, that is what then enabled these exiles, these refugees, to look up again. This transformed them from, not just from refugees to be residents where they were, and not just to be in mourning, but to be on mission. This enables them not just to be victims, but to be visionaries, to look up and to see a future, not for them personally, but for the people of God. So here then is this very surprising letter, don't you think? It brings to the exiles a surprising new perspective on their situation. And yet, really, it's nothing more than simply the old ancient truth of the whole Bible, that God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. God was with them if they would only see God's hand at work.
And secondly, it brought them this very surprising new mission. And yet, actually, it was simply the original mission. Because that's what God had said to Abraham, go and be a blessing, and I will make you a blessing to all the nations. All nations will be blessed through you. Not just the nations that happen to like you, that wouldn't be very many, but all nations, including even your enemies, be a blessing even there. And it brings this surprising new hope, even though actually it's nothing more than the ancient, original, covenant commitment of God that he will always be with his people and deliver them and rescue them for their good. And so there's something to look forward to, as indeed for us also, that whatever God is doing or will do in this part of the world, we have a future with God, not just in this world, but also right through to the end of the story in God's new creation. And living in that story and for that God changes refugees, mourners, and victims into resident missionary visionaries. And the challenge in question is, which are we going to be in this place for God's purposes? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you inspired Jeremiah to write this letter on your behalf to those people even 500 years before Christ. And yet it still speaks to us across those centuries, speaks to us today in this world. And we remember, Lord, that with you, a thousand years is but as a day. And so it's hardly any time from your point of view since this happened to what's happening in this part of the world today. And you are still sovereign. You are still God. And your purposes will be carried out in this world for your sake and for your glory. And so we pray that for those same reasons that you will guide and lead us, each one of us, to seek your hand and your will and your purposes for us in this city. For Jesus' sake. Amen.